Hello and welcome to the Animal Rescue Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Therand. And this week, I talk with Mindy Gilbert of the Humane Society of the United States about the work that they do and different ways that we can get involved and help support animals in our communities. Um, And if you hear any puppies in the background of this recording right now, I am currently fostering six little shrieking puppies that um, love to keep me on my toes. So... Without further ado, here is Mindy from the Humane Society. Oh, great. All right. Hello, Mindy. Thank you so much for joining me on the Animal Rescue Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm totally flattered to be with you on a Saturday morning. And just go ahead and hit me with whatever questions you have. Awesome. So to start with, Can you tell me a little bit about your role? I know you work with the Humane Society of the United States, um, but what specifically do you do? Well, my title is State Director for the Humane Society of the United States, and I've I've been in this role for over 14 years. Uh, Primarily, I work on public policy, and that may be state legislation, municipal ordinances, policy for individual groups or shelters if they're looking for insight on that. Um, In addition to that, you know, I promote information from our organization and they may, that may be kind of being a lead person when there's a a natural disaster event in the state to be able to connect resources to impacted areas, things of that nature. So it's um, primarily public policy and enforcement work meaning working with enforcement agencies, but it also can be a soup to nuts kind of a job, just depending on what emerging issues are at any given time. Okay. So how, what is the process like of, you know, saving animals from different cruelty type cases? Cause you guys get involved with those, right? We do, but we, um, it has to be at the request of law enforcement. And, and even then, you know, it's kind of on a case by case basis. Um, we, nor any other organization can be every, you know, everywhere all the time. Um, so we try to work, um, with issues in criminal cases that are specifically important to that state. For example, let's just say that a state is um, working on legislation that has to do with animal fighting. You know, if law enforcement is reaching out on a really significant case, our assistance to them may be in several different forms. They, you know, our, our animal fighting experts may support their investigation. We may actually be on the ground assisting them with evidence collection and animal housing. Um, It just sort of depends on what the request is and how we think we can best fill that gap. Yeah. Um, There, there are a lot of misperceptions. I think there are folks who think that I have the ability to rappel out of a helicopter and go on the private (laughs) property and, and, you know, just do whatever it takes. And that is absolutely not the case. We are not a law enforcement agency ourselves. But we, when we work with local law enforcement, it's usually with a structured memorandum of understanding about what they're inviting us to assist with, what we believe, you know, our role 
can be to support them. And those things are all agreed upon in advance. So, you know, it's a little more, um, there's a little more depth to it than I think what people consider, you know, it, it's not like one of the CSI shows where the evidence technician is also, you know, staking out and surveilling a property and making the arrest and interrogating the suspects. <laughs> it's not like that at all. Oh man. So, well, you, I mean, when you work with law enforcement agencies, you come up with a plan prior to going in then. We work with them very closely prior to going in. And that means, you know, making sure that warrant language is appropriate, that, you know, we are identified with a specific role in support of law enforcement. Um, we're there under their umbrella. We're not there without them. Mm -hmm. You know, they're there every step of the way. Um, and we, you know, that's really important to a state like Alabama because more than a third of the state has no animal control, doesn't have an animal shelter. Yes, does not have an animal shelter. Um, and the laws that we have that protect animals are part of the criminal code of the state. And so technically they are to be enforced by sworn officers of the law, but many times, and you can see why, uh, large scale cases of, you know, are going to occur in the areas where there isn't the traditional support. So um, I feel that the, the cases that we have done um, have been really significant for the jurisdictions that we worked in because they just didn't have the resources to be able to bring it to the finish line. Yeah. What sorts of, I mean, like you said, in Alabama, it's, it's, there's a lot going on here. What, um, what can people do or what, can, what changes in legislation need to be made in order to kind of improve the environment or the climate here? Well, um, again, that's another issue. And I, I've heard this forever. People say we need better laws. But usually right. when people are saying that, they may not have a full understanding of the laws that we do have. And there is a big difference between enacting new law and having actual enforcement of existing law. Um, we have a very good um, law that protects dogs and cats. Um, it allows for responding officers and agents to do a lot of different things to resolve a situation up to and including removing animals and criminally charging somebody. But, you know, it gives the authority to be able to give orders to make corrections in place and follow through on them. Um, there is the ability to remove an animal in an exigent circumstance without a warrant and a process in place to be sure that, you know, the owner is provided due process under their constitutional rights. Um, there are criminal charges all the way up to and including felony level charges. Um, but I think one of the biggest challenges we have, frankly, for that particular law and, for example, our dog fighting law is one of the strongest in the country. Is it? Yes, it is. Every aspect of it, owning the dogs with the intention that they'll fight, breeding them or training them with the intention that they'll fight, actually fighting them, hosting a dog fight, being present at a dog fight, those are all felony crimes. Wow. And that's not the case in other states? That's a, that is not the case in many states. 
Um, Many states, you know, a certain portion of that might be a significant penalty, but even if you're just a spectator at a dogfight, you can be charged the felony in Alabama. Wow. Yeah. So it, um, and we've had some excellent dogfighting cases. I certainly believe there could be more. <laughs> yeah. But again, again, that's an enforcement issue. And, and to be clear, I'm not entirely being critical of law enforcement agencies. I'm certainly there are some that I, am critical of privately (laughs) Um, but you know I have tremendous sympathy for uh, rural sheriffs who are operating on a wing and a prayer and they may be covering a jurisdiction that's you know six or seven or eight hundred square miles with 10 or 11 deputies and they Mm -hmm. have to do everything right Um, so I I am sympathetic sympathetic to that because you know in their minds they look at what the needs are, what the resources are. And, you know, um, they very often will put human victims first. Yeah. You know, so um, it, it's just not as cut and dried, I think, as many people would say it is. Now, as far as legislation is concerned, the last couple of years in the legislature, um, I have not been working proactively. I've been holding the line because we've had some very egregious bills introduced that would have repealed existing laws would have prevented municipalities from enacting future laws, um, would have defined just anything in which a person derives pleasure or money as a legal animal enterprise, which in essence would make dogfighting legal. So um, there, there's, yeah, so I've been in uh, high defense gear trying to hold a line and, and so far have been able to do that. Um, I would love for more citizens to be involved in the democratic process because it is a, a government that works by representation. Um, but, you know, the truth is, is it more, <laughs> is it more fun and initially rewarding to save some poor dog on the side of the road and have a happy waggy tail and a big smoochy pet kiss or to go down and talk to legislators in the state. Right. I mean, I can understand why people <laughs> might, but you know, the two are not yeah. mutually exclusive, you know, and, right. and if I were going to make a plea to anyone at all, it would be, you know, pay attention to what's going on. You may not ha- have the ability to take a day off work and take a vacation day and drive all the way to Montgomery and wander the hallways and try to talk to your, your representatives. But, you know, um, your representatives live in your district and the time to become acquainted with them, to let them know about the issues that care that matter to you and to let them know, you know, what resources do you bring to the landscape of their district is when they're not in legislative session is when they're home. Right. And anybody can do that. What other ways can people get involved? Are there other ways? Yeah, there are other ways. Um, you know, we have a volunteer program and it's not, again, the kind of volunteer, for example, you mentioned that you volunteer at a local shelter. It's, it's maybe not as initially fun as that, but what we do have is um, humane policy volunteers that assist on both state level legislation and federal legislation by reaching out to 
their representatives with a particular message on a particular issue. Um, you know, like, please do support this. Please don't support that kind of thing. Because in the end, you know, elected officials, of course, listen to special interest groups and those that fund election campaigns and so forth. But we can't really claim that they're not listening if we're not taking time to send a message. True. Yeah. And I think particularly on state legislation, there's been, I've seen some, some tactics over the years from well-intentioned people that are not useful. And that would be, you know, sending massive amounts of emails and all screaming capital letters and saying, you know, my taxes pay your salary. <laughs> Uh, well, really, what's more useful is if you can before legislative session or or when when your legislators are home is to kind of communicate with them if you can in person or or if you want to send them a letter or an email, introduce yourself briefly and say, you know, I'm writing to you because state your purpose, but then also give them a little. Um, I volunteer at a local animal shelter, which serves the people of a county and handles, you know, X amount of animals a year, in addition to enforcing animal cruelty laws. And the issue that I'm reaching out to you about is one that matters very dear to me, because I think I know that elected officials have a tendency to put, quote unquote, animal people all in the same bucket. Yeah. And and sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes just depending on how somebody communicates, not so good. Um, I've also, I've had legislators actually hand me emails where somebody has written to them and just cussed them out. And oh, wow. of course, in their mind, you're all the same people. And I'm like, hmm, right. I don't know that person. <laughs> so, so, you know, there is, uh, and the thing is, you don't always get what you want. Mm -hmm. You don't, particularly on your first communication, but, but if you can, make up your mind that you will be somebody that stays in touch with say your legislator or your city council person or your county commissioner once you've got their contact information it isn't necessarily something that has to take away time from your hands-on activities it's yeah. you just have to make up your mind that that this is important um and and i mean it is important and it doesn't even have to be people who who are actively working in sheltering or rescue it can be i mean look at how many people don't work in sheltering or rescue but you know their family dog sleeps on the bed with them right. you know and it's at their feet under the dinner table you know th th these are things that affect not just animals but they affect the people who care about them right and yeah so that so you know it's um anybody's welcome to reach out to me anybody's welcome if you want to take it to the next level and be part of a, a national team of people that will, you know, we have a, a, a whole department on this, this education and outreach in which we can direct humane policy volunteers to reach out to their federal legislators and what the messaging is, what the issue is, and they can just pick and choose how much of that they want to take on. Sometimes it's as simple as just sending an email or making a phone call. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, the simplest option has the greatest impact. Well, the thing that's so nice about that program, I don't administer it. I certainly stay in touch with the humane policy volunteers here at the state level, but we have an, a whole team of people that manage these folks. And we have, I think, 
450 or 500 different congressional district volunteers. And so they, you know, they have a close Facebook group, they get weekly meeting invites to hear about emerging issues. And, you know, not, there are, I think, probably some very enthusiastic people that engage on every single one. But, you know, you might have particular ones that are more important Mm -hmm. than others, and that those would be the things that you focus on. So, I mean, volunteerism, as you know, mm. for, for any, anything that, that benefits animals is pretty important, whether it's, you know, your local shelter or, or anything else for that matter. Yeah, definitely. So one thing I kind of mentioned before we started recording was um, that I think there, the perception of the Humane Society of the United States, other large organizations that are very public saying that they work with animals and they want to support um, animal welfare. The perception is often that it's usually just for money um, or attention or what have you. how can we cut through all of that noise and really get to the heart of the issue? I mean, I know a lot of these organizations are denigrated in the media, but then they actually are doing some good. Well, I mean, I, I, would, I can speak well on behalf of the organization that I work for. You know, I, I can guess that some of the other national animal groups and and international groups face the same challenges. I can tell you that most of the, um, one of the the most sadly, probably um, detrimental campaigns to discredit the Humane Society of the United States has been on behalf of um, the people who are impacted by our work. if I tell you the majority of people care about animals in some way, that probably doesn't surprise you. But when I say that, you probably think about people like yourself or like me. I mean, I'm sitting here on my couch with six dogs. Um, <laughs> hmm. and, and can I just tell you how incredibly helpful they are? They've all been out cutting the grass, cleaning the house, <laughs> not. But, you know, when when the big organizations take on the big fights and I'm talking about really big fights, like um, similar to what um, people have taken on big tobacco. There are smear campaigns against those people, people who have taken mothers against drunk driving. There are smear campaigns against them. And so when you are beginning to be effective in your efforts to change the way something is happening that we believe is bad for animals, you've created a powerful enemy. Mm -hmm. And as we have worked on things like um, puppy mills, for example, you know, that brings out some pretty heavy hitting opponents, the AKC, the cavalry group, just a number of folks um, protect the harvest. Uh, Same thing when you're working on improvements or, or changing systems for animals and agriculture. You know, the United States is not on the same evolutionary scale of how we treat animals and food production as, for example, the European Union. Um, a lot of the traditional ways, one of the things we work on is extreme confinement. Um, have you ever met a pet pig? 
No, but I've heard. Well, of well, they're pretty cool. But yes. to give you an example, uh, pigs are also highly intelligent. You know, we talk yes. about we talk about primates being very intelligent. We talk about dolphins being extremely intelligent. And right behind dolphins are pigs. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about extreme confinement, we're talking about breeding sows who spend their whole lives basically being artificially inseminated, giving birth, suckling piglets in what we call a, um, a confinement cage. They're not able to stand up and turn around. It's wow. designed to prevent them from ever accidentally sitting on a piglet and, and squishing it. But these are animals that, you know, have an incredible lifespan and have the ability to think and feel. They're not just objects. And, and that's how we're treating them. Um, well, you know, know if you, pigs, they can recognize their own reflection in a mirror. And yeah, they have self-awareness. Yeah. Yes. Their intelligence is that of a toddler, a human toddler. Well, and I've kept pet pigs for 30 years, um, mostly reactive to the issue that there's a lot of pet pigs out there that people get on a whim and then they, mm-hmm. they're pigs. <laughs> you right. know, they want to dig, they want to dig holes in your yard and they want to steal stuff out of your kitchen. And, mm-hmm. but they, um, they're smart. Um, they're very, uh, vocal. They're communicative. They bond with each other. They bond with other animals. They bond with with people and so when we're impacting you know big agriculture is what we're talking about that's a formidable opponent yes um they've got big money um they um you know one of the other confinement issues that we work on are egg laying hens you know um if you've ever been around somebody that's got backyard poultry you know and they have fresh eggs and they've got yard chickens and they if usually people that have grown up like that always will have those birds, you know, mm-hmm. and they're, they're a benefit, but they're also, again, um, very interesting animals, but, you know, egg laying hens, what we call battery hens, uh, multiple hens will spend their entire lives in a wire cage. That's about the size of a sheet of paper. Oh. And they, they are spent. In other words, they're completely worn out at about 18 months of age whoa the natural lifespan span of a hen can be eight to ten to twelve years so they are um in extreme confinement with oftentimes tens of thousands of other birds they um they peck each other to death they they die in their cages and their other birds stand on top i mean it's a disastrous situation and if you've ever seen an operation like that you think twice about putting that egg in your mouth. Um, So we work very, we've worked very hard to, to pass legislation, not easy, to require producers to have cage-free options. And one of the ways that that's occurred is not necessarily by beating up the producers, but by influencing, um, for example, McDonald's, Burger King, Walmart, um, it, they are requiring their suppliers to have more humane standards. Right now, every single brand of Walmart eggs are cage-free eggs. Now, I've heard 
kind of some conflicting things about what cage-free actually means. Well, you're correct. There's, there could, there's a difference between, I think cage-free implies everybody's out running around in the pasture. Yes. And cer certainly there are some scenarios like that. But in other scenarios, it may be that the animals are typically in um, chickens that are in food production, whether they're laying eggs, whether they're broiler chickens being raised for food. Um, they're not, they're housed indoors. And the, it, the, in agriculture, there's kind of um, a herd management system that's known as all in all out and i know all over alabama you see what we call chicken houses broiler houses mm -hmm. where um they are um the integrators the people who are between the person managing the birds on the ground and the person processing the birds for sale for consumption will fill that chicken house with you know newly hatched chicks and no more are added or taken away until they're all ready to go. Um, so they may be in a situation where they have space to run around and they're not in a little tiny cage. Um, they may have a situation in which they have the ability to naturally perch, even though they're inside a building. So um, certainly if we asked my chickens right now in the backyard i have three girls <laughs> that were born here and they're about 10 years old and they would be horrified at that situation because they right. think they should come in the basement at night and oh be able God. to run around yeah oh they do they come <laughs> in the basement at night it's for their own protection they come right. down the steps in through the dog door it's hilarious but I love you know or, or if the weather is really bad they all look at each other oh, time to go in um, but oh the point goodness. is, yeah, they, they have a choice. And, you know, I, I hear people talk about animal rights and I, I actually don't believe in animal rights. And the reason I don't is because animals, as we know them, aren't in control of what happens to them. That control lies with us. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of think more in terms of human responsibility. I think we kind of veered off your original question, and that is what do no. these national groups do besides raise money? Well, the Humane Society of the United States was actually formed in the mid 50s by a group of people who said, hey, our local shelters are pretty busy and they're not able to take on these really big fights. They're not able to spend a lot of time at the legislature. They're not able to go to Washington DC and lobby on Capitol Hill. Um, and so, we're not going to do their job. We're going to do something that may complement their work if they care about animals. And of course, again, um, a lot of people think that because we're not funding your local shelter, that we're just greedy, money-sucking, you know, soulless bastards. Right. <laughs> but our our mission, I mean, we we have staff. Uh, we because we have staff, you know, we are like any other big company. We have headquarters office we have a support function we have payroll and accounting uh, just like any other company would um, so naturally that requires money but the issues that we're that we take on are um, and of course now we're working on these issues globally with people as I said in 52 countries so um, it, it's a lot of actual people on the ground doing the work yeah um, 
and that is what we're funding. So we never, never claimed to be nor acted as though we're operating your shelter. Mm -hmm. But I think there, there is to this day some public misperception that, oh, well, you're not giving money to my local shelter. We're not really a pass-through funding organization. We do have limited grants available, but they usually are for things like helping somebody get past a disaster response. Um, you know, if your shelter got wiped out in a hurricane, we would probably have some funding to help with that. Um, you know, so it's not exactly the same thing. And, yeah. and I, you know, I understand why people have that confusion, but, but it is a little bit frustrating. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that we, it's, it's a little bit frustrating when we do have um, hurricanes uh, and certainly the COVID pandemic was a, an interesting response. I think a lot of shelters just close up and go home instead of viewing their responsibility to serving the community, you know? So it, it's just interesting. I mean, if you've ever, have you ever gone to our website and poked around a little bit? A little. Yeah. There's, I mean, you can poke and get lost. I mean, you know, <laughs> you sure. can just go, you can go on and on and on. Uh, and, uh, but you know, there are, um, there's resources on there. We also have, in addition to our main website, we have Humane Pro org which has um resources for rescues and shelters and how to you know it has all kinds of very current issues uh, resources there it may be on emerging diseases it may be on emerging trends in supporting animal owners it could be all kinds of things um, so that's free you know um, it's there but it's it, we don't really look at our mission in order our mission is not to fulfill your mission our mission is, you know, our own and our um, operating model is in alignment strategically with our mission and what our, you know, what our goals are. And we're very focused. I mean, right now we're doing um, a really hard push on things like ending um, cosmetics testing on animals. And that's very close, very close I, indeed. So I, um, I can't remember what group it was, but I, followed someone on Instagram and a video just happened to pop up and it was was that probably uh, about a rabbit well I've seen I've seen those pictures but it was a beagle having oh, yeah. a, a being tested on and that was, um, those were the Dow the Dow beagles mm -hmm. yes um and so after I saw that I uh threw out all of my cosmetics all of my hair care, body care, everything that I could not determine was cruelty-free. And I have since made the switch. Nothing comes on my house unless it's cruelty-free because I just, and the research that I've done on it is there's no need to do any no, animal that's testing. That's exact. <laughs> there, there, really, there really isn't, um, for, for, particularly for cosmetics or chemical mm -hmm. testing, because we have, uh, and I'm, this is way above my cerebral capacity, but in gen but it, the general understanding is, you know, we have cell cultures that are now on computer microchips mm -hmm. so that we can, we can figure out, you know, what's resistant, what's not, et cetera, et cetera, without doing it to live animals. Well, and not only that, but I've, and I think this might go more into um, 
like medical testing, but oftentimes, even if there's no reaction in an animal, when they go to do testing on people, it fails because it's not right. the it's same. Just, it's, it's not, it's apples to oranges. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, as far as wildlife is concerned, we're very, we're very um, involved in, um, when I say trophy hunting, I'm generally talking about lions, rhinos, elephants, things. And we, we again work on that by making it unlawful to import their remains into the country. So, you know, well, yeah. And trophy hunting is kind of a newer topic in my sphere, I guess. Um, well, so we have, we have traditional, what I would call sustenance hunting. Yes. And, and, and in the South and particularly in the deep South, um, you know, that is culturally embedded. Um, you, mm -hmm. you get your, you know, you are um, somebody who gets a hunting license. Yep. You go out and you get your deer um, and you eat that deer. Um, and you're not, you're not just out there killing something to hang a head on the wall. Mm -hmm. Now, there's other kinds of hunting and one would be contest kills where, you know, the person that kills the most of this wins a big prize. Yeah. Um, and very often that's done in terms of, um, for example, coyote control. And it's actually yeah. not an effective means of doing that. No, because um, with coyotes, when you start to kill them off, it actually triggers something and they, they reproduce even more. Don't, isn't... Well, when it's kind of like, you know, years ago, I lived in, in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and there's a golf course there. And I, I forget which hole it was, but there for decades had been this massive alligator that lived at that hole. And there were signs up that would warn you, you know, keep an eye out for the alligator. But the alligator was not removed because everybody knew that if you remove that great big, huge dominant male alligator, multiple alligators would move in to try to, to take to fill up that gap. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's very similar to the thinking about why we're very focused on supporting programs that trap, neuter and return cats to the field, yeah. as opposed to just continuing to catch them and impound them. Because, you know, I don't know a single shelter anywhere that's not swimming in cats. But oh when you goodness. look at, when you look at the data, I mean, there are about 60 million cats that are owned. And that information comes from veterinary surveys and the American, you know, pet products manufacturer. Um, there have been some cat watch projects in major metropolitan areas to kind of get a sense of how to extrapolate unowned cats in the community based on the human population. And there's an estimated 70 to 80 million unowned cats out there surviving, but there are less than 3 million cats coming into shelters and yet they're so overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So is that really the way to handle them or is there maybe right. a better way? So, I mean, you know, you're constantly looking at this, but we, we look at these contest kills, you know, we are concerned about um, things like grizzly bears, wolves in Michigan's, you know, special interest hunting groups are using money to influence legislatures to open up, hunting on 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 species that have been at risk for extension um mm -hmm. and they're opening up that hunting not necessarily based on the science 
that the population can support hunting, but they're opening up those hunts based on money given by special interest groups. So we work against that. So, so these are a lot of things that, you know, even my friends who are traditional animal advocates, that doesn't ever enter their, you know, their area of concern. Yeah. And that's why I say, you know, we're, we're out, we're taking on bigger fights that, that local agencies are not. Yeah. Because there's plenty of work for everybody. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, I mean, for I, sure. Really do, I really do think so. Yeah. When I think of trophy hunts, I think of, you know, the African safari where people go mm -hmm. and they pay a certain fee to go shoot whatever animal they pick. Some people have argued that it's a conservationist effort. How do you distinguish between what is conservation and what is just? Well, there's, a, there's different kinds of trophy hunting. What you need to understand about Africa is there are, there are businesses there that are raising lions in captivity to hunt. Mm -hmm. And so we would call that um, high fence hunting. It, we, we have it in, in a way here in Alabama, certainly not with lions, um, mm -hmm. but we have um, commercial deer breeders who, really? are, who are breeding deer. Oh yes, and, and they are a powerful lobbying group. They are breeding deer to specifically have enormous racks, you know, the antlers. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're genetically bred for that purpose. Um, and they're not loose. You pay for the privilege of hunting. They're raised in captivity and they're hunted behind a fence. So the difference between, the difference between a lifelong Southerner in the deep South who has, um, a respect for the woodsmanship that's required to go out you know, lawfully with your hunting license mm -hmm. and bag your deer that your family's going to eat. Mm -hmm. um, that's a different thing. And in fact, a lot of traditional hunters look at those situations that I'm talking about, the, the behind the fence or the high fence hunting, and they don't consider that real hunting. No. And, you know, Alabama's, for example, very, very, very concerned about chronic wasting disease in deer coming to the state. It's a prion disease, kind of like mad cow disease. Yeah. Once it establishes itself in a state, it, it's, it's not been eradicated anywhere. Yeah. Um, there is a belief, and in some instances, a real connection between uh, commercial deer breeders and the spread of chronic wasting disease. Um, they are, you know, we actually have a state law that the, you know, deer cannot be like, you can't bring a living deer into the state. And of course, commercial deer breeders are, are working on, you know, they're using, um, sperm that's preserved or they are reproducing deer that are already in the state. Um, and so when I say it's a big business, I mean, it's a really big business and I'll tell you a horrible story. And it was told to me by our, um, at the time, the chief enforcement officer for the Department of Conservation, Fish and Wildlife Services. Um, 
those agents had done an investigation based on someone that was selling a hunt of a commercially bred deer with you know an enormous rack of antlers Mm -hmm. over the internet which is unlawful um and uh an individual with wealth was responding and gonna buy this hunt and and communicated back and forth with the party that had the deer and said you know i'd really like to really like to kill this deer with a bow and arrow but i'm not sure how proficient i am and this individual was told don't worry this thing will be puppy dog tame you'll be able to walk right up to it so so an arrangement was made uh the deer was sold it was to be delivered to particular area and the people delivering the deer sedated it and they put it on a um transported it and when they got to where they were going to deliver the deer they had over sedated it actually they sedated it with ketamine and you know people are not supposed to have ketamine uh and the deer was dead but um they took the deer and they they put it in a refrigerator truck and they froze it in an upright standing position and they placed this dead frozen deer in the bush directed the person who purchased the hunt where to go and shoot it with an arrow and of course they shot a frozen deer and at that point the conservation officers you know kind of burst out of the woods and yeah you know some arrests and charges were but the thing got to court and i'm not going to say which judge or which county but the thing got to court and the judge stood up and in open court um cussed out the conservation officers and told them they should go out and do real work and said i hunt with these boys and not only were the were the did was the case dismissed but the um the trophy head was ordered to be given back to the guy that sold the deer unlawfully in the first place for this hunt. So, you know, that's putting it in a really bizarre, I mean, I was like, and they told it to me because they weren't allowed to talk about it publicly. And I kind of put the story out there if you, but um, in the end, it's just one of those really egregious and crazy things that people Mm -hmm. go through their daily life and don't realize is going on. Mm -hmm um so that's you know weird but yes so we don't have an overpopulation of elephants in africa we have elephants that are in protected parks in which um there are local people who are employed to try to protect them Mm -hmm. and they they get murdered sometimes or you remember the story about cecil the lion that was hunt okay I well, do because I'm originally from Minnesota. Okay, well, I'm so sorry <laughs> about that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, just within the last couple of days, there's been another lion that was in that was protected, um, a well-known lion in this particular <coughs> preserve where they're protected, that you know was lured out of the boundaries and shot and killed in almost the same location as Cecil for the trophy for the trophy so you know there is I mean I don't hunt I've never had the desire to go out and shoot deer I do understand and respect that one of Alabama's greatest resources is its natural resources and so there is a need for conservation and management Um, but when we're talking about just purely contest kills 
like let's go out and shoot as many doves as we can or let's kill as many coyotes as we can and whoever kills the most wins the prize it's disrespectful in my view and in our view the hsus view it's disrespectful of wildlife it's disrespectful of the environment um and it isn't like you say it isn't necessary it's not doing anything good yeah so so again that's a little off point but but lots of issues um Mm -hmm. and um you know, in fact, you, the puppy mill issue, we, of course, have been working on that hot and heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and our focus is changing a little bit. You know, there are a few states that have enacted laws that regulate puppy mills and breeders. They're not, they're not illegal, but they have to be licensed and regulated. And those haven't really proven to be terribly effective. Again, the enforcement issue. Yeah. But what we are finding and what, in fact, Muscle Shoals and Florence were two of the cities that passed a municipal ordinance prohibiting retail pet stores from selling puppy mill dogs. That's awesome. Well, and of course, there's huge opposition to that, um, largely the AKC. And what's really interesting about their, um, their campaign against that is that they're saying something that's actually true they're saying this limits consumer access and they're making it sound like that never happens but municipalities regulate who can sell alcohol Mm -hmm. they regulate where a massage parlor can be and those regulations may in turn limit consumer access yeah but they are with the, the municipalities that have done this or have kind of drawn a line in the sand and said, we're not going to do that here. Yeah. And the interesting thing about, I mean, in, in Alabama, we only have one major corporation that sells puppy mill dogs and that's the Petland corporation. And there's only one Petland store in the States in Montgomery. Oh, wow. um, and it's been there for quite a while. Uh, but what we do have are other chains like PetSmart, PetSense, Petco, Pet Depot, who all offer resources to assist the locale in which they're located to adopt that community's homeless animals. Yeah. You know, they may have a cat room in the store or they may hold adoption vents in the store. So they're doing things to support that. And we don't want, we want to preserve that model. We don't want them, you know, so, uh, so that has been an interesting, we've had 11 municipalities um, enact these ordinances and we've tried to select them. A couple of them have been really in key legislative districts. For example, the speaker of the house's hometown, um, the leader of the Senate's hometown, because I mentioned earlier that we've had some really horrible bills introduced that would have a terrible impact on our infrastructure of existing laws. And, you know, one of them had to do with animal enterprises and would have done away with any laws like that and prevented municipalities from ever enacting laws like that. And so I think it's really important that we be working on these because I think it'd be very hard for legislators particularly those in leadership to go against what their hometown is doing. Yes. Ah, ha, ha. Absolutely. Uh, so is it as much fun as finding a homeless puppy on the side of the road and cleaning it up and getting that tail wag? Maybe not. 
Right. But it is it is establishing, you know, a foundation for preventing expansion of a terrible an industry that's just based in suffering. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but doing that work makes it where that puppy doesn't ever have to end up on the side of the road all dirty and dumped, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, um, it's challenging and and it's not for everybody, but public policy work is, is important. And I will say that opposition groups are working effectively in coalitions now. Um, these bill, these bad bills that came forward, um, were being supported by the AKC, by, you know, the, um, the cavalry group the protect the harvest, all these groups that oppose anything that regulates or impacts the way somebody makes money by exploiting animals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're fighting really hard and in a very um, sophisticated and structured way because they stand to lose something. Right. We don't maybe as animal advocates put as much effort and focus into fighting to to make that change because what we would be doing is not losing something. We would be trying to gain something. And for some reason, people fight harder when they stand to lose something. Yeah. So, so when I talk to people publicly and I say, you know, the majority of people care about animals, that's the true statement, but the majority of people who care about animals care about them for different reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, professional dog fighters care about their dogs because they're making a ton of money. Right. Somebody that's running a puppy mill cares about that because they're, they're making money. Mm-hmm. So our caring may not be any more or less, but it's for different reasons. And it's important to understand that when you're discussing opposition, because yeah. legislators believe they have a stake in things as well. And when a when a bill is introduced in the legislature or a bill or, or an, a proposed ordinance is introduced, say, at the city level. Once that thing is introduced, it belongs to anybody that's got a stake in it for or against. And so they have to be shepherded. If you're trying to pass something good, you have to generate support. You have to shepherd it through the process and guard it against negative or hostile amendments. And so um, it's difficult. I won't lie. It's difficult. And I would love it if more people would get involved. Yeah, me too. I think, I think, these days, I feel like people are just so bombarded with different causes and. Well, and I think that is digital and social media. I yes. know I myself sometimes have to walk away from my newsfeed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because it's just, you know, like you say, it, you're getting bombarded with a million issues a day that only last maybe on the screen or in your brain for five seconds, but then. Right you know, it's just a lot and you have to, you have to pick and choose what you're able to do. And the thing is, everybody's on that path at a little bit different speed. You know, you don't have to be everything to everyone. You just have to, you know, find a way to, to, to work on what you care about. I mean, I care about things. I mean, I care about homeless people mm-hmm. and try to support, you know, my lo- local homeless coalition, because that's a very real problem too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like you say, we're, we're living in some strange times and there's no end of need in the world. Right. So yeah. there. And I think sometimes people just, the 
bombardment gets so exhausting and it dilutes all of these issues. But I think if people find a cause or two that they really feel passionate about and really dive in, and even like we said earlier, the simplest things can make a big impact. So just reaching out to legislators and um, local representatives. And I encourage, I encourage people if they're going to do that, you know, don't introduce yourself as an animal person. Yeah. Because they don't represent animals, but they represent people. So for, let's just say, for example, you're part of a volunteer group that goes out and provides houses, dog houses to dogs that are tied up outside with no shelter. Uh, my suggestion would be that you frame that in saying, you know, I work with this group and last year we supported, um, you know, 79 families in your district by helping them with their pets. You know what I mean? I mean, we have to do a better job of explaining why our work is important and what it, what it means in the landscape of a legislator's district. Um, and, and a lot of times that's just, you know, providing information about what your impact is. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, when talking to, to people about some of these issues, I remind them, look, yes, you have your local shelter that's, you know, doing this work, but you also have individuals in the community that are volunteering their time and they're giving of their money mm -hmm. um, that also care about this issue. And they are, you know, they are your voters. So it's important. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Mindy, where can people learn more about the Humane Society of the United States? Well, they can go to our main website, which is humanesociety.org. And um, you will see, you know, we, what our big fights are, what, you know, what we're really, really focused on right now, uh, both here and around the world. Um, you can also, if you're looking for information to assist with your shelter or your rescue, or you're thinking about starting one, you can go to humanepro.org. Um, and there's just unlimited information there. You know, you might want to talk about a community cat project and there are publications there that you can free, you can download these free toolkits for, you, you know, not only for you or your group, but for city officials to understand, you know, really what the problem is. We, we complain a lot, I think, about elected officials. They don't care, mm -hmm. but I don't know that we've done the best job of educating them. Right. And those tools and resources are there. They can't care about something they don't know about. Absolutely. And if we're not going to take the opportunity in a respectful way, in a diplomatic way mm -hmm. to educate them, not to scream and yell and throw, you know, throw them. It's right. tempting. Trust me. I have days when I drive <laughs> home sure. from the legislature and I'm like crying and massive, you know, eating mm -hmm. jelly beans just as fast as I can for stress relief all the yes. way home. <laughs> I'm oh, not I proud bet. of it, but there are days like that. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, we, we do have to, even if we don't get what we want the first go around, we have to be consistent. We have to show up. We have to leave the door open for the next conversation because nobody wins everything all the time. Right. Um, and that's kind of how that works. And then in between, you should definitely hug puppies. Absolutely. <laughs> that is always helpful. I'm a big, I'm for that. 100%. Yes. yes. All right. Well, thank you, Mindy, so much. I appreciate your time. And um, this has been well, very good helpful. luck with your podcast. I think it's an excellent idea. 
And, you know, if you have other questions you want to ask, you could reach out anytime. And I appreciate that you were willing to listen to what I had to say. Yes. Well, thank you. Have a great day, Keisha. You too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Animal Rescue Podcast. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe and tell your friends. Thank you.